0: Let's uh, read again the verses that we're going to be uh, studying this morning uh, from chapter 9 of Romans and reading from verse 19, uh, the third objection that uh, Paul is envisaging to uh, what he's been saying about God's sovereign choices. One of you will say to me, then, why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? what is formed say to him who formed it why did you make me like this does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. Amen. Alexa is a voice-activated <laughs> virtual assistant uh, developed by Amazon, and it will answer uh, virtually all your questions. It will tell you. Uh, what the weather's going to be like tomorrow, Uh, it will tell you what the football scores are, how the stocks and shares are going, it will play your music, it will turn on your appliances, it will order food for you from your favourite restaurants, and amazingly, it will even store up your past choices on the cloud, and it will profile you so that it can anticipate what your likes are. And this kind of ability to uh, predict uh, what you're going to choose creates like an eerie godlike quality to Alexa and uh, Siri uh, Alexa wants to make your world nice for you but the one thing that Alexa is not is Alexa is not sovereign uh, she's not free to do what she chooses and indeed uh, there are some people some folks who who uh, Looking at these things always through a, a feminist uh, prism, see that uh, she, by having a female voice, is uh, stereotyping uh, females as being those who always serve and do one's bidding. And so there's a move to have Alexa change to a male voice. Some people have a view of God like Alexa. God, uh, for them, is not sovereign. God is there to make your life smoother, make it happier. And God can be adjusted uh, to suit your tastes and preferences. But God is not your Alexa. God is not your Alexa. It's a funny world where everybody wants to be sovereign. But lots of people don't want God to be sovereign. Everybody wants to be sovereign. Everybody wants to have their own free choice, which is what being sovereign really means. The ability to, to make our own choice. There was a, a radio program, Radio Scotland, uh, we're looking at the, the closures of Marks and Spencer's stores, uh, and particularly two big stores. Scotland Eastford, and are closing. And they had a lady who phoned in saying that she was really shattered, that the Falkirk store was closing because uh, she had a disability, I think she was a wheelchair user. She found the Marks & Spencer staff really helpful for taking her around and enabling her uh, to make her own choices. And she said, if they close down, then I'm going to have to resort to (laughs) to sending my husband out to buy what I want. And I know that if what I say isn't Offer, he will buy what he wants, and that's not the same. I want to be able to make my own choice. That's perfectly reasonable, so is We can really understand, we can get why that lady uh, would feel that something was taken from her when she wasn't able to make her own choices. We want to be sovereign. Uh, Yesterday, of course, there was the big election in Ireland and uh, pretty much a landslide victory for those who want to liberalise laws on abortion. And in the debate on the the side of those who want to repeal the uh, statute that limits or, or prohibits abortion in Ireland, At the heart of the debate was the idea of a woman's sovereignty, a woman's right to choose. And, of course, that side of the the debate is often termed pro-choice and the other side pro-life. Everybody wants to rule their own private world. Everybody wants to be sovereign. We saw last week that being sovereign is actually bound up with who God is. It's at the very core of God's being. God is by nature free to choose. He is the sovereign God. When God reveals his name to Moses, uh, he reveals it uh, as uh, the the God who will have mercy upon whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Uh, And yet, for uh, many people, uh, believers as well as unbelievers there is a resistance to letting God be God. Uh, there's a strange human irony, a strange irony in which human sovereignty is acknowledged but divine sovereignty is resented and repeatedly challenged. And this morning God's word asserts most vigorously that God has his sovereign Writes, God is free to choose. He is not your Alexa. God is a sovereign God. We're looking this morning at the third question that was raised as a potential objection to the sovereignty of God. Uh, you remember the first one was, has God's word failed? And it was looking at the promises that were made to Israel and then the, the evident fact that not all of Israel had uh, chosen Jesus to be their Messiah. And Paul answers that by saying that the promises are made to a remnant, not to the whole of physical Israel. And then the second question was, is God unjust? And Paul pointed out that uh, what's at stake here is not justice, but God's freedom to show mercy. And mercy, as we're saying to the children, is when we don't get what we deserve. God, in uh, his compassion, overlooks our sin. And we come to the third and final question then, why does God still blame us for who resists His will? The message of the verses can be summed up in this way God, God's sovereignty means His right to deal with creatures in such a way as to demonstrate His glory in both His mercy and His is Justice. I want us to look first of all at the, the force of the objections to uh, God's sovereignty and then look at Paul's response, which uh, is secondly that God has all the rights when it comes with his dealings with us, and thirdly, God's way of acting shows his glory in a fuller way than any other. So, first of all, let's feel the force of the objection to God's sovereignty. And Paul is dealing with the person, essentially, then and today, who can't see how our freedom as human beings uh, is compatible with God's sovereignty. Uh, This person uh, is very much aware of the fact that we make free choices and can't see that God-choosing can be compatible, can square up with the, the, the very real sense that I make free choices from from day to day. And therefore, if I've got to choose, I'm going to choose my own freedom uh, to, to choose, my own sovereignty, even if that means rejecting large parts of the Bible, including much of Jesus' teaching. Paul's objecting, objector is basically saying, You've just said that ultimately the difference between Moses and Pharaoh was the choice of God. Well, let me ask you this. How can God condemn Pharaoh? How can God condemn anybody? Since you've just asserted that it all boils down to the choice of God. If God is sovereign, how how can our choice mean anything? Doesn't predestination make us into robots? Not only that, how could Paul speak of hardening? God hardening uh, Pharaoh's heart, how can God blame us if he hardens us and it's that question that Paul is going to tackle in the passage: doesn't God's predestinating obliterate free will doesn't it mean that we uh, that it's unreasonable to be blamed for what we cannot resist so you see how this is going uh, the, in the first two questions, Paul objections. Paul has vindicated God's justice, and he's shown that God is entitled to show mercy. And here, in a very real way, the human heart, which always wants to wriggle out of the implications of God's word, then tries to bring in the question of of fairness, of of uh, not being accountable. Uh, therefore, if it is true that God has chosen then why can I be blamed? Surely I'm not accountable if God is choosing. Okay, let's look at the response that Paul makes uh, to the objections that uh, it's unjust and that therefore I can't be blamed, can't be held accountable if God chooses. You'd expect Paul, wouldn't you, to, to go into an argument which uh, shows how free will and God's sovereignty, God's God's choice, God's predestination are compatible, how they can hold together. And it's interesting that he doesn't do that. There would be a place for doing that. And, you know, lots of of, uh, reformed theologians have done that. They've showed how uh, the two are compatible. That our choices are real. We make real choices, and yet we have a God who ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And we may not understand how the the two aspects mesh together, but in the wisdom of God, they do, and we we accept it by faith. But Paul doesn't look into that. He doesn't take us down that route. But he addresses an issue that's lying underneath the objection. And that's the resistance of sinful men and women to letting God be God. He smuggled into this objection, it's not fair for God to blame us, is a An undermining of the character of God. At root is a stubborn resentment against God's freedom to choose as he wills. At root is the popular kind of outrage against God. Uh, I can't believe in a God who would send anyone to hell. You hear that, people speak in these ways. And it's not just a common response, it's a telling response. Because if you can't believe in a God who would send anyone to hell, then the question is what kind of God do you believe in? Because if you don't believe in the God who's revealed in the Bible, you've made up a God in your own imagination, and essentially you're committing idolatry. You're worshipping a God other than the God who is revealed in the Bible. And in the end, it boils down to the question, what kind of God? Is the God that you say you believe in, is he the true God or is he a manufactured God? Is he a true God or is he a kind of divine Alexa? Someone who can do your bidding, someone who can be fine-tuned according to your taste and preference. Remember in the Garden of Eden, one of the the strategies of Satan was to attack the character of God. And in Eden, Satan's attacking the goodness of God. In Eden, Satan is saying, you know, God is not the good and benevolent Father that he wants you to think. Because he's keeping from you. The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he knows it will be good for you. He's withholding from you that which is good. He's not a good God. And his strategy is for uh, to make Adam and Eve believe the lie that the only way that they can get the good is by their own effort, not by trusting obedience to God. That is... The fall was the result of Adam believing a lie about God's goodness. And here we have an attack on another aspect of God's character, his sovereignty. You see, behind the idea that this is all unjust and that we can't be blamed for God uh, because God has uh, has predestined us in this way, uh, behind that is... The implication that God is creating evil. God is creating evil. The objector is suggesting or implying that God has created men to be sinners, that He wills their evil choices in order that they might be sent to hell. And you can see how that is such a distortion. God doesn't look down on a bunch of good, decent people. And in his choosing, decide that he'll make some of this bunch of people sinful so that he can send them to hell, and he'll make this other bunch have faith so that he can save them. That's what the subjectors are implying by saying that they're helpless. That is a, a cruel distortion of the character of God. God does not create some people simply to condemn them to hell. And that's what's behind this full. False outrage that you hear from many people. What kind of God they say creates people with the intention of sending them to hell and overrules their wills in order that they might show that He might show His glory in eternal punishment? That's a gross caricature of the reality. So, what is going on? It's important here to use words. Correctly, you know. Sometimes people are kind of cavalier about words or impatient with with biblical words, but words are important. Definitions are important. And when we talk about God's sovereign acts towards the elect on the one side and the non-elect on the other, uh, some people use the term double predestination. And you'll be encouraged, I hope, to know that. We're not going to use that term because it's not a very helpful term, double predestination. Because what double predestination implies is that God is dealing in one way with the elect and predestinating them to glory. And his way with those who aren't his elect is just the equal and opposite of that. In maths, it's the mirror image of the way he deals with his elect. But it's not The way that God deals with those he's ordaining to heaven and those who will be in hell is quite different. When God predestines, he looks down on a fallen humanity. God looks down on men and women in their sin. And regarding his elect people, he supernaturally intervenes in their lives through the new birth So where there was no spiritual life, God grants life. Uh, He gives sight to the blind. Uh, He grants faith to his elect that they might believe in Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. Uh, He (coughs) enables repentance. He sanctifies by his spirit, and eventually he will glorify us. But with others, it's different. God simply passes over chooses not to save. And the difference is this. With with those that God is predestining to glory, it is all of God. not of their works. God is the active agent. He has brought about the new birth. He has given the gift of faith. Uh, He works sanctification. But with others... They are the active agent. They do earn their destiny because it is the wages of sin that is death. You see that important difference? How important it is to see that one is not just the equal and opposite of the other. So sometimes we use the term reprobation of God's passing over god passes over sinners and says well have your way continue in your sinful choices so it's not true that god created uh, us to be sinners god uh, in the beginning created men and women good sin was an inexplicable falling away from that goodness adam was given the best conditions for continuing in obedience and yet He chose to disobey. And if you and I had been where Adam was, then we would have fared no better. Adam had the the optimal conditions for obeying God. God does not create evil, does not compel men to sin, and many, many scriptures confirm that God is not to be thought of as the author of evil. Here's just a few God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. James 1.13 God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. 1 John 1, 1.3 God is not the author of confusion. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14.33 And if that's true, then God is certainly not the author of evil. So, this is a strong God, if you like, that's been raised up as an objection. We don't believe in that God. A God who infuses sin. Into people in order to send them to hell. And therefore, Paul moves to uphold God's honour and to confront the objector. Now, Paul's way of dealing with the objection doesn't mean that it's wrong uh, to have honest questions. Uh, It's right that um, we should acknowledge our our difficulties and doubts. In, In fact, who can say that they understand this whole area that we're in just now? There's so much that we have to simply humbly receive. Uh, but what Paul is discerning is that sometimes our questioning is actually defiance, dressed up in the way of reasonable objections. And so he calls out uh, the rebel. He points to the arrogance of speaking back to God. And so his response is, but who are you? a human being to talk back to God. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Some of you uh, may have seen, uh, heard of this uh, interview that Stephen Fry had on Irish radio uh, on the religious uh, affairs program last year or so, I think. Uh, A notorious interview uh, in which... Fry has an outburst against God. He's asked uh, what he would say to God uh, if he was to stand before God. He says, I'd say, how dare you? How dare you create a world to which the, in which there's such misery that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? That's what I would say. Now, if I died and it was Pluto, Hades, and if it was the 12 Greek gods there, I would have more truck with it because the Greeks didn't pretend to not be human in their appetites, in their capriciousness, and in their unreasonableness. They didn't present themselves as being all-seeing, all-wise, all-kind, all-beneficent because the God that created this universe, if it was created by God, is quite clearly a maniac, utter maniac, totally selfish, Why must we spend our life on our knees thanking him? What kind of God would do that? It's almost shocking to quote uh, Fry. It's such a reprehensible outburst. And notice the phrase, what kind of God? What kind of God? Uh, Fry's question is essentially, it's a question of faith rather than unbelief. Uh, If there's no God, well, we don't get a sense of outrage, a sense of injustice. These are categories that we only have because there is a God who is just. And because we've been made in his image, we know what justice and injustice is. Uh, If there's no God, then there's no concept of justice. We're left with a pitiless round of evolution. But it's God who placed that sense of justice in his image bearers, even those who rail against him like Stephen Fry. And in any case, uh, Christians don't believe in a God that Fry doesn't believe in either. He's made another God of straw. Our God is not remote from suffering. Our God is a compassionate God. He didn't make the world as it is now, nor as it will be one day. He's a good God. And when we rail against God, as the objector in this third objection is doing, then we're in the same we're in the same seat as Stephen Fry was in that interview. We're sitting in a judgment seat and we're shaking our fist against God and saying, How dare you? How dare you? And that is preposterous. God is infinite in wisdom and truth and justice, and he's given to his rational creatures, man and woman, the gifts of reason discernment between right and wrong, sense of justice, and therefore how perverse is it when we use the very gifts that God has given to us to question God's wisdom and goodness in what he does. You see how Paul is getting to the root of things rather than just running with the assumptions his objector makes. God has every right to make us as he wills. God is the potter We are the clay. Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes, some for common use? And remember, uh, when we're speaking of of God molding clay, God is, if if we can use the same figure, God is taking sinful clay and is preparing the sinful clay for two different uh, uh, destinies. It's a people in rebellion against him, and God's free to mold some for special purposes by touching them with new spiritual life, saving them, or alternatively employing them for his strange work in passing over them. God doesn't warp the clay so that some of that clay ends up for ignoble purposes. He's working with already warped clay. When God hardens, he acts judicially in confirming the set of the sinful clay. And it should make us shudder, you know, when we, when we think about this hardening, to think that perhaps some of these very high-profile atheists who are so vocal in denying God and ridiculing God are in that process of hardening. Part of it is because they, they become caricatures, really, of themselves. A picture of, of the, the, the potter and the clay was a common one uh, in Biblical times and even today you can go into craft shops in Scotland and you can see uh, the, the, the potter uh, working in the workshop and uh, see the way that the, the clay is spun and shaped. One of the most famous passages in the Old Testament is Jeremiah Uh, where the prophet is sent sent to go down to the potter's house to watch the way the potter is working with the clay. And then after he's seen how the potter starts and then begins all over again, uh, God gives the application. God is free to uproot or to plant nations, even Judah, according to his choice, because he's the sovereign potter. Isaiah uses that the picture uh, in the way that Paul uses it. He says, You turn things upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, He didn't make me. Can the pot say of the potter, He knows nothing. Essentially, Paul's saying all the rights are on God's side. He has the right to choose and his choices are true and just and holy, because that is his character. Thirdly, God, in these choices, is showing his glory, either in showing mercy or bestowing judgment. What is it to you? Uh, Paul challenges the objective. If, uh if, indeed, God wishes to show his wrath and make his power known in judgment. God is entitled not to show mercy. He can't be compelled to show mercy, and he has his reasons for withholding mercy to some. We turn again to the example of Pharaoh. In verse 17, Paul speaks about God's power being shown and his fame noised abroad by hardening Pharaoh's heart in judgment. He is this great, powerful guy, Pharaoh, strutting on the world stage, quite convinced that there is no one more powerful than he, until God's ambassadors, Moses and Aaron, confront him and humble him. Those who shake their fist at God in all ages uh, do do it from a sense of their own self-assured power. Go back to Stephen Fry. Uh, you know, there are few men more self-assured uh, with his you know, plum uh, public school accent and his, his uh, sense of being a national treasure and his wealth, which is estimated at 20 million pounds. But the sobering reality is that unless Fry softens his heart, he will be hardened and will know the judgment of God. God's chief end in all he does is displaying his glory. And there's this unique way by which his power and patience are shown in his dealings with those who are passed over. God is able to use even uh, the the most utter wickedness of men to fulfill his purposes. Think of the cross. The cross is always the great example. The cross is the greatest good that has ever been wrought. And yet, Uh, In its uh, coming together, it came together by the wicked choices of sinners. Peter at Pentecost declares, This man, Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. think how patiently Jesus dealt with Judas, knowing all along that Judas was reprobate, that Judas was conspiring against him. In the end, the tragedy that was Judas serves to display the power and the wisdom of God in the cross. And in a solemn way, the fact that God's judgment is a reality, that people will be judged, it's not just a technical possibility, that is what makes the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for his glory verse 24 Uh, when jewelers are wanting to display uh, the the brightness, the luster of diamonds uh, they don't put them against uh, a white background, it's a black background, a dark velvet background the riches of God's mercy to us is shown supremely against the dark background of judgment against sin. And the solemn doctrine that we're looking at should cause us to gasp in amazement. Why me? I deserve to be passed over. If we know our hearts, we'll confess that. My callous disregard of God, my worship of self, slighting of God's majesty, withholding of obedience... A thousand falls and sins made me worthy of God's judgment, of his passing over me when he bestowed mercy on others. And yet he came to me. He showed me mercy. He assured me, your sins are forgiven. How amazing. This is designed to create in us uh, not just an understanding of the glory of God, but the riches of God's glory, to make us realize our inheritance in God is greater than any earthly treasure. And also, God's dealings with sinners is a solemn doctrine, but it's also comforting because it's telling us that the wickedness that opposes God is never outside of God's control. God will have the final say. And ultimately, wicked men will receive their proper judgment. And even the most powerful of them will be toppled. The mocker, the Stephen Fry's of this world, the Richard Dawkins of this world, they will not have the last say. God is over them. Darkness will not engulf the light. Unbel- unbelief will not ultimately win the applause. But of course this doctrine is designed also to be extremely humbling. It has a, a religious function in all of us. It warns us against domesticating God by reimagining his awesomeness, airbrushing out his sovereignty. Scriptures say to us today, let God be God. He is not your Alexa. He is the awesome, undomesticated, sovereign God. And therefore, if you're not a Christian, submit to him. You can't bring God under any obligation to save because of anything you've done or because you've not done anything that's significantly bad. But you can call on him for mercy. And God saves by the preaching of his word. He's pleased to save by the preaching of his word. And it's a wonderful, comforting thought to think that if things are beginning to fall into place and if things begin to become clearer by the word being preached there is good reason to believe that God is at work by his Holy Spirit for he is the only one who can give light and therefore what great encouragement there is to ask him for his mercy believing he will grant it Believing he is at work in your life. That he's the God of compassion. And that he will save everyone who calls upon his name. Therefore may he bless his word to each one of us this morning.